genre. Welcome back to Spider-Man Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze and celebrate Spider-Man 3 uh, one uh, credit-filled uh, minute at a time. I'm Scott Corelli. <laughs> I'm Zach Luna. Uh, welcome back, folks. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back. Uh, today, we're talking about Minute 3, which begins with the credit for casting and yes. uh, ends with uh, the credit for uh, Screen Story by uh, Sam and Ivan Raimi. Hey, and uh, and ends with the uh, it also ends with the uh, spider wedgie sequence from uh, <laughs> from uh, Spider-Man 2 um, where, where Toby crawls across the really giant web towards yeah. Mary Jane and uh, his and his backside's all messed up. Yeah. Uh, as we pointed wedgie. out last season. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, lots of uh, lots of uh, minor things in this episode, just as far as, um, you know, covering a few uh, credits here and there as mm-hmm. far as um, updates on some people. But uh, you have some updates on our on our main cast, what they've been up to That's right. uh, between yeah. films, because it's been three years. That's a. Yeah. Uh, long period of time actors can get a lot of work done in that time so uh, yeah what Um, what 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 have our what have our uh what's what's our gang been up to so our gang has been up to a few things um i i think the most uh the simplest one is is our is our good boy toby Mm -hmm. uh mcguire so basically in the midst of the spider-man stuff toby does not uh try to do a bunch of other things because Mm -hmm. he is let's face it, extremely well paid for the the Spider-Man film. So sometimes he'll do one movie in between them. And uh, this this gap in the uh, filmography was no different in that uh, he really only did one project between Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3. Other than sometimes you look up something on like IMDb and it will... uh, it, It will present something as if it's like a film and then you look into it and it's just like a like a web thing like a four internet feature or something like that. i don't know so te- technically he has two screen credits between spider-man 2 and spider-man 3 but one of them is as far as i can tell just some sort of weird video project that vanity fair did where they got random famous people to like do noir looks but it's a video project so that doesn't count anyway sorry <laughs> Between Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, the only thing... Uh, between Spider-Man 2 and 3, the only thing that uh, Toby did was a movie called The Good German, mm-hmm. which is a uh, Steven Soderbergh project with uh, George Clooney and Kate Blanchett. It was this, like, uh, this black and white, old-fashioned movie um, in, like, post-war Berlin where yeah. there's a, a military journalist who's, like, uh, ends up in, involved in a murder investigation. I had never heard of this film. I... Did not know this existed, but it, it almost seems like a, um, as pure an example as I can think of, of an actor doing something like smaller and meaningful in between their big franchise blockbuster things. Like, yeah, yeah. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Toby played a Nazi in that. 
Um, yeah, Corporal yeah. Tully. Yeah, he's the like um, sadistic. He, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, he was thing. obviously trying to do uh, something that is the opposite of Peter Parker. Yeah. How do I? How do I get? Some other things on my reel to show my range. <laughs> I don't something. think I don't, I don't think, think he needs that because he's super you know, concerned with his reel. But <laughs> he's uh, been working since Cider House Rules. And I well, I, I do. Yeah. I do have a theory that he was trying to show people that he wasn't one note because he was he wasn't as wholesome as yeah. He, he kind seemed. of had a, a goody two shoes vibe in mm-hmm. all of his big projects for a while. Yeah, so, yeah. So I guess something like this would be. Um, appealing uh right. in that in that sense it's like yeah. do this small intense post-war thing right. where you can play a sadistic nazi thing. right but mostly um, he just played poker that's what he did <laughs> if certain if certain books and or film adaptations of said books are to be believed um <laughs> yeah so that's that's all toby did it honestly pretty well-expected trajectory um, of mm-hmm. what are you doing between your big franchise features. Right. Um, for our next uh, rung, rung, spire, and a tribe, there, we have three three big uh, big people. Corner? Yeah, corner, yeah. Our next corner uh, would be mm-hmm. uh, Kirsten Dunst, who I think has just by far the best uh, string of project choices here. Um, mm-hmm. Just in general, we've often been ringing the bell of how good... Uh, Kristen Dunst is uh did I say Kristen Bell? Oh my God. No, you said Dunst. Okay, good. Uh, we've been ringing the bell <laughs> of how good Kristen Dunst is at picking projects. Bell's not bad either. Um, but this this stretch between 2004 and 2007, so check this out. She did um, like the video game voice of herself in Spider-Man 2, but that doesn't really count as in the role. So she did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, yeah. concurrent with Spider-Man 2. Then she did Wimbledon, which is a Woody Allen movie, and that wait, oh, wait, really? No, not Woody Allen movie. I'm thinking of Match Point. Wimbledon yeah. is her uh, with um, with Paul Bettany, the uh, the rom com she did. Right. Uh, yeah. The tennis say, he did. Woody Allen did not make that movie. No, no. Woody Allen made the very weird. You know, Woody Allen's an asshole in general, but he made that that very weird yeah. dark one with um, Scarlett Johansson. So Wimbledon was her, um, you know, uh, comedy romance uh, movie with Jarvis. And right. then she did Elizabethtown and then Marie Antoinette with uh, Sofia Coppola. Like just lined up projects back to back to back, all of them fairly successful, all of them, uh, you know, good different types of roles. You know, not that a, uh, a tennis rom-com is like the biggest stretch for her, but like that's, you know, a, a solid wheelhouse for her. And I don't know. I'm not a person who's familiar with Elizabethtown, but I, mm-hmm. but people, a lot of people liked that movie, and enough that that's the the film where we've started getting think pieces about manic pixie dream girls and things like that. Oh yeah. But um, to just like to just take a step back and be like, okay, so you did uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which for my money is like one of the best movies released in the entire decade of the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, a Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry movie and mm-hmm. a Sofia Coppola movie and a Cameron Crowe movie. And you also did a little rom-com in there. That is a hell of a stretch for, yeah. for a film actor. Yeah. I just, I just look at it. I'm like, yeah, man, she's, uh, she's killing it. She's killing yeah. the game. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. 
it, it, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, I think that she, I think she came, came back because she has fun with these movies, but, um, mm. you know, it was, I can only imagine stepping back into this world after doing those projects probably yeah. felt like a little bit of a, a misstep a little bit of just yeah. like, Oh, why, uh, you know, I did all those things and like, I'm not, I'm not getting anything better here really uh, right. than I was yeah. in the last two films. Like I, you know, there's more of me, I guess, but like what I'm doing isn't any more interesting than the other ones. And um, that's, that's, uh, you know, it kind feels of like a, kind the of movie bummer. needs her more than she needs the movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's a good um, way of putting it. Yeah. But God, I just, I just think she's great. Yeah. Um, no, she is great. And that's a great run for sure. Yeah. Yeah, killing it. Um, and so the thing that I was most intrigued by is our, our third corner here of our of our main trio, which was what sort of career decisions was uh, James Franco making in the uh, 2004 to, to 2007 range? Oh, no. So what, what, sort of, what sort of career uh, choices is he making? So first off, it seems he was in the middle of his... Um, you know, make some movies that show that you're a uh, leading man, actor guy type thing, which translates in this period of his career to military movies mm-hmm. s- somehow. So he had a, a, you do a World War II movie, right? So he did one called The Great Raid. Um, and a, he did a, a Navy Navy Academy movie by Justin Lin called Annapolis. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I you remember. Your, I remember Annapolis. You got your army movie in there. You got your navy movie in there, and then he did um, uh, your uh, your air force movie, which is a, a fighter pilot film called Flyboys. Does anybody remember Flyboys? I um, remember the title. I don't remember the movie itself. Yeah. So um, that was like he was starring in that as um, you know main character uh, number one or whatever. You know, Blaine so and so. Yeah, but it was a uh, young these young Americans who volunteered for the French military like in, in World War One, like before the United States actually entered the conflict. There were Americans who were already abroad and wanted to help the fight um, with the Allied forces, and so th- it's about Americans who became French military fighter pilots before um, the U.S. had entered the war. So it's okay. You know, yeah, I remember this movie. Yeah, yeah. That sort of stuff. Um, Tony Bill directed it. I don't know. So that's like his standard stuff. And then this is also the period where James Franco makes a film called Tristan Annie's Old, which is the uh, big, (laughs) like, uh, Shakespearean. I mean, it's it's the story that Shakespeare based uh, Romeo and Juliet off of. So it is a, a big, sweeping period film romance feature with all these like all these british actors and 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 james franco in there and um you know if it flopped it it flopped but uh but you know that was a was a big swing honestly that's not the weirdest thing he did in between these movies oh really the weirdest thing james franco did between these movies was that he started to write and produce his own films, feature films. And the first two that he did, he did in between Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3. Uh, 
One of them is called Fool's Gold, which he did in 2005, Ooh. about a <laughs> a treasure hunter seeking for a sunken Spanish galleon, the Aurelia, that was lost at sea with the 1715 treasure fleet, and during his search to find the missing pi- pirate ship treasure, his wife divorces him. And th- that is a feature film that James Franco stars in and wrote and exists in the and world. And directed. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 somehow. So, you know, uh, uh, okay. Okay. Huh. You know what else he did? He wrote a film called The Ape and starred in it and, uh, and, and, uh, and directed it. And d- the film The Ape is about a young writer who has a, a mental breakdown because of his family and decides to move into a, an apartment and finds out that his new apartment, his roommate, is... Uh, <clears throat> let me get this right. A walking, talking, foul-mouthed ape in a Hawaiian shirt and Converse high tops. Oh boy! So he did a he did a monkey movie. Um, oh, on, on on purpose. I've seen this. No, oh, no, you have. <laughs> as soon as I saw the picture of the ape, yeah. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um. Uh. Yeah, I have a I have a theory about him. Okay, that this this connects to, uh, uh, very oh. specifically connects to. Oh, will this enter into our basketball scene later in the? Uh, in the yeah, future? I see. Yes, okay. I I think he's chasing something. Yeah. Uh, and Oof. and and uh, this is all part of the plan for him. Yeah, because um. Another film it came out in 2003 that James Franco did not see until 2004-ish. Yes. And might have uh, uh, lit some inspirational ideas uh, aflame uh-huh. in, his, um, uh-huh. in his mind there. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Because uh, then he also has a movie called Good Time Max, which he also directed in 2007. Yeah. Um, um about two genius brothers who grow up and grow apart. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yep. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. That is it interesting. Is interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I, I applaud the gumption if nothing else, uh, yeah. make, make your own opportunities, make your sure. own work. I guess okay. if you've got some big franchise paydays, you might as well, try your hand at making some, some, some features on your own. Yeah. Um, I, I also, and this is this this is actually very important uh, okay. for for his career. Yeah. Um, something else he appears briefly uh, in uh, another film that uh, would uh, I think jumpstart his career in a new direction, which is Uh-oh. that he uh, reunites with um, uh, Apatow and uh, oh. Seth Rogen in Knocked Up in an uncredited role as a character called Saul. Oh my gosh. Um, that, that happens in 2007, uh, which granted, you know, obviously it's a re he reunites with these two people because, yeah. you know, having worked with them on freaks and geeks. But I think that this, uh, this uncredited role as Saul leads directly into pineapple express and, um, 
everything yeah. that happens uh, after that. I mean, it would have to, right? Because Pineapple Express comes out in 2008. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so um, I, I actually think he's supposed to be playing the character from Pineapple Express because it is a character named Saul. It's just spelled differently. Yeah, um, yeah. In, that makes uh, sense. in knocked up. So I, uh, yeah, so this is that, that's sort of the beginning of that new, like James Franco is a comedian trajectory, yeah. comedy yeah. actor trajectory. James Franco makes strange projects territory. Like right. James Franco will do his own odd thing in the corner territory. Right. Um, right. Um, oh. like he did, uh, my Bethany references this all the time that, uh, he did like a viral video short, um, with Mila Kunis where they were making fun of the Hills, uh, around this time. Oh, and that was like, I guess that was one of those like early, like videos that was like funny viral video, but it was like starring like, like big people, you know, it wasn't just like internet people doing internet videos anymore. I don't know. Um, it's a very simple concept. It's just them acting out a scene, making fun of the way that things happen on that TV show, the Hills. But if you were a person that followed the Hills and there were a lot of them, you definitely saw this uh, short with uh, Mila Kunis and James Franco um, being Justin Bobby and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, this is a a linchpin key time period in terms of understanding where James Franco goes and what he becomes, I think. Yeah. Um, it was just fascinating to go look at those two trajectories happening simultaneously. The, like, what is the normal movie star thing to do? You've got mm -hmm. your, you know, military features over here, uh, you know, mm -hmm. your small parts and big dramas, and then your personal projects and how mm -hmm. the personal projects became very strange mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to, to put a, oh, yeah. to put it lightly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. So yeah, that's... Uh, 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 and, and it is him simultaneously giving up on the... Right in 2007, this mm -hmm. is when he is giving up on being a leading man to the point where... Mm -hmm. This film, it when Harry dies at the end of this film, it's sort of like James Franco is putting to bed leading the leading man. man James Franco. Yeah. Uh yeah. and and accepting that he is going to be comedy actor James Franco and director James Franco and character actor James Franco. Yes. Um, and he's done being a leading man because this is the last time that he plays a normal role. If you even want to call <laughs> If you this even normal. want to call, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is the last time where he did sort of like this mainstream, like traditional, norm, traditional blockbuster movie. Like, yeah. didn't do anything like this after this. Yeah. Um, like, this is it. This is the death of that part of his career. Wow. Yeah. It's it's wild to just see it laid out so cleanly like that. But yeah, you're hundred percent right. Yeah. We don't we don't enter back into like, you know, James Franco, that like handsome leading man from Freaks and Geeks. That's not a thing nope. after this. Nope. It's yeah. done. Wow. Um very interesting. Uh yeah. So and we'll we'll have a lot to say about James Franco and what he's doing in this movie. And it, <laughs> sure. It really starts right away. Uh yeah. next next week. <laughs> Uh, yeah. next week we'll start talking about it and, and our theories about what he's doing in this movie. Um, yeah. and, uh, uh, it, 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 it'll start making a lot of sense, guys. It's going to make <laughs> a lot of sense, uh, but we'll get to that next week. Yes. Um, 
is that uh, is that that's pretty much it, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. 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 Um, so I've got a couple of things. Uh, one, I, the one thing I want to talk about is um, the music. Uh, we talked about uh, yeah. the the sort of um, shade that Danny Elfman was throwing at Sam Raimi in the production of Spider-Man 2, how mm-hmm. difficult uh, it was for him and how he basically vowed to never work with Sam Raimi again. Yeah. Um, and uh, this film is scored by uh, a composer named Christopher Young. Yes. Um, who uh, really created some banger themes in this oh yeah in this film honestly uh i mean highlighted in this minute right right the 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 symbiote theme is very very good as is the uh tragic like sandman theme Mm -hmm. um that will uh get much later in the film but um he he comes up with a, a a few really really great themes that really fit perfectly in the uh danny elfman scores of the of the first two films that really yeah. He really it's, steps into that role without missing a beat. Yeah, it's of a piece with the whole soundscape we're used to with, with yes. these movies. Um Yes. And um as it as it turns out the reason for that was that basically uh Kevin Feige knew that the music wasn't going to work without Danny Elfman's involvement. Mm. Uh and so he went to Danny Elfman and was like, "Look, what can we do to get you at least somewhat involved in this?" Wow. And Danny was like, I don't want to talk to Sam. <laughs> wow. So, so Danny, uh, Danny Elman worked directly with Christopher Young and basically gave Christopher Young notes on his pieces uh, to not to change his pieces, but to make them fit more in with the original themes that they were going to be reusing. Of Danny okay. Elfman's in the yeah. film and would basically be like, well, if you use this instrument for that note instead of this one, it would feel more like this, which would fit in better with the stuff that I was doing. Gotcha. Um, and so it was basically like he was a, 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 a score consultant. On OK, the film. <laughs> um, but only consulted directly with Christopher Young, uh, not with Sam. And I believe Sam was none the wiser. As uh, as far as Sam knew, Danny Elfman had nothing to do with the score of this movie. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, but uh, but he did a little bit, just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. you know, helping Christopher Young w- really sort of uh come up with something that that matched um Danny Elfman's uh uh themes that he had right. made for the first two films. And I think that you know together they they really uh created a, a very strong score in this movie. I think it's very good. Absolutely. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I want to pick favorites here, but I think it's very good. Yeah. Uh, I, I get amped up when I'm, when we're, you know, doing prep for this and rewatching sections of the movie and getting into it again, the, the music really is um, powerful and evocative and, and wonderful in all the ways you want it to be Uh, that old fashioned, uh, movie making that we talked about so much in the the previous seasons it's just as strong here oh yeah yeah, yeah for sure um and then uh so that's the music and then we mm-hmm. have um our editor uh bob morowski who edited the last film as well and was mm-hmm. one of the editors on the first film right the superior editor yeah, the um, one that won. <laughs> the, the one in Oscar uh, for The Hurt Locker in the future. Um, 
but uh, here, I think the thing that's really important to talk about with, with Bob is that um, Bob is the author of uh, the uh, Spider-Man 3 editor's cut. Oh. And then I, I do want to just give a, a, you know, a shout out to uh, my boy, our uh, <laughs> cinematographer, of course, yeah. uh, Bill Pope, who uh, returns for this film. And um, I think uh, does some interesting things with the cinematography because it, it, it has a very different palette it really, than yeah. uh, the previous film. I think my favorite part about uh, the credits, however, is that uh, when the director of photography credit for Bill Pope comes up, it features a shot that is from the film that he did not DP. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just think that that... That is some uh, A grade shade being thrown on Bill Pope by uh, by uh, what what is his name Chris what Oh uh, uh, Cooper Chris Cooper yeah which credits yeah yeah which I don't I Chris what do you got against Bill Pope I don't understand <laughs> he does great yeah I found this um, um, article from a cinematography magazine where Bill Pope talked about making Spider Man three and. Um, one of the things he talked about was the the production timeline, just like physically how many more units they had shooting, um, meaning that he would have to like, uh, they had all these like note cards they had to, to dial in what lighting setup was used for which shot, which day that could be referenced by whatever second unit photographer was going to come back in and continue on shooting whatever he, whatever look he set. They had these like notebooks and stuff, which I thought was sure. great. The other thing he mentioned about, why this one way to come up with new looks for this film was um, how many characters wore black because right. he, you know, you would have like scenes at night with like new goblin where you have like a character who's dressed in black and green against a black background. And mm-hmm. um, you know, the it's nighttime right. and uh, Spider-Man in the black suit and venom are mm-hmm. three different characters that are, almost fully black in nighttime scenes. And so he says one of the reasons that the look changed a lot in this film was that he had to do a thing he doesn't like to do that often, which is use a lot of rim light to um, get those characters to pop out from the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So you'd get like harder light than he is used to using just because you physically, the the costumes will soak up a lot of the light. So that had to dictate how the look changed. And that sort of stuff... I don't, I don't know how interesting it is to people in an, an audio form, but it is um, fascinating from a technical perspective, just how much technology shifts from movie to movie that he has to do. Like, I just feel like, I just feel like cinematographers are wizards and I want to give them proper credit. Yeah. Because that's, that's all it looks like to me. Once yeah, you start yeah. reading like how they do what they do, you're like, oh no, oh God, that's impossible. Um, yeah, no, you, you hear the thing where he was just like, yeah, he had to use ring lights, which is a thing he doesn't like to do. I was like, oh, yeah, no, me either. Like, I don't <laughs> just just like I have no idea what he's talking about. OK, sure. <laughs> not a fan, not a fan. But yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Well. And, uh, you know, they they thought about shooting it on digital, but they, they wanted to do this. There's this post-production thing that I guess in 2007 was easier to do with the film print because you could get the film scanned at a higher resolution then you could shoot natively in like mm-hmm. a, you didn't have those like 8k camera sensors or whatever. Right. So like, like Sam Raimi sometimes a lot of times would want to re do a frame in post, like sh- shift it around a little bit 
and spatially. And there wasn't enough information on the digital cameras to do that. So they would shoot on large format uh, film and then scan that and then go back. I don't know. It was just the longer I read that article, the more I felt, you know, I've been like, I've been studying filmmaking for a while and I've been like working at least adjacent to the professional film industry for, you know, more than half a decade. And I just feel like an idiot listening to cinematographers talk because they are so smart and what they do is so hard. (laughs) Um, So props to Bill Pope, our boy, our boy, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is also the last film uh, with, with uh, that, that is credited with, um, uh, Kevin Feige before he took over Marvel Studios, correct? Because, yes. Because this yeah. this was released like as Iron Man was wrapping up production. Uh, uh, yes. So yeah. he was he had already uh, Iron Man had, had wrapped up production and and uh, Incredible Hulk was starting production. Like they're this, into it. Yeah, they're 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 into it. He is uh, full on uh, Marvel Studios, and so this is like the last thing that he worked on that he wasn't in charge of. Yeah, and it's. It's just wild to see. I mean, the the way that the screen credit pops up is Stanley and Kevin Feige, uh, which is a kind of intense moment there. You're like, oh my god! Um, but yeah, the era has shifted because um, basically Avi Arad, um, not abdicated, but like quit his Marvel specific positions in 2006, and that's when um, uh, ended right at the top of 2007 is when Kevin Feige became the president of marvel marvel studios which he had been a producer there um for for a long time since um the first x-men movie is when avi arad hired him because he was an associate producer on the x-men movie um because he had more comics knowledge than a lot of the other uh producers involved and avi arad was so struck with his knowledge of all the marvel films that he hired him on as associate producer for x-men and then kept him with it. So Kevin was a executive producer on the previous Spider-Man films, uh, uncredited on the first one, credited on the second one. But on this one, because he's now president of Marvel Studios, that's why he gets the executive producer credit at the same time as Stan Lee, whereas right. the other EPs are are, are credited separately. Right. Um, it's just it's it's wild that like you blink and you miss it, but the evidence is right here that the the era has shifted completely. This is a big, this is a big deal. Uh, yeah. You know, we, this movie coming out, we are a year away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe starting. Which always feels weird. I mean, we talked about it earlier in the week, but it, it is so crazy that th- yeah. this is the moment. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it is bizarre to think that Iron Man opens exactly one year from the opening of this. Of Spider-Man three, Spider-Man yeah. three with the yeah. Sandman, that yeah. movie yeah. comes right before Iron Man. <laughs> Which, and, and it's so funny cause it makes perfect sense because I remember when I, where I was, where I was working and everything. When this opened, I was working at uh circuit city mm-hmm. and it went out of business and I moved to Florida and watched Iron Man in Florida in wow. 2008. So like I, I, I know that that makes sense. Like I can, I can make the timeline make sense in my head. It's just so bizarre to think about. <laughs> like it does not feel right. We, every, every day of like research I do for this film, I get re-reminded of how the actual timeline fits. It never, the, the, the evidence is mounting, but it never feels quite real. Yeah. <laughs> this is, 
it's madness. Not, yeah, madness. Absolute madness. So yeah, there's there's the man himself. Um this is before he did all the uh the iconic baseball cap and everything and whatnot. Like um Yeah. I was watching uh, behind the scenes featurettes for Spider Man three the other day and they've got some some big interviews with Kevin Feige right there and no hat in sight. He's just there with his ginger hair talking about talking about Venom mm-hmm. and it is bizarre. Uh but uh but but there it is yeah we are this is our last day that's fully fully creditsy credits uh, yes yes um but seeing all of the uh there's a weird feeling in looking at the assembling talent for a project versus the like actual thing you make Mm -hmm. and um hearing people talk about this movie because they're reticent to talk about any of the challenges you mostly just get people talking about their work relationships uh, on, on this film and making it day to day. And it reminds me of the thing where that like, it's hard to know while you're making a thing for sure, how it's going to pan out. Um, right. You know, unless you're like the number one person in charge, who's like got your eye on the, the spot you're aiming at. And even then it's going to be a totally different movie later. Um, all you really have day to day is your working relationship with people and the team you constructed and there is there is something about Spider-Man 3 when you l- look into these um, behind-the-scenes stories that it is all sort of hinging on this thing of people were really excited to make this movie. Um, oh, yeah. And had great collaborators and all of the, all of the talent and funding you could want or, or just shy of all the talent and funding you could possibly want um, ready to, to make the biggest movie ever made. Um, I don't know. There, there's like, like looking ahead at the season, I, I I feel like there must be a sort of parallel feeling with like looking ahead at the shooting schedule. Like, all right, here we go. I hope it all works, but we've, we've got great people with, with us. It must. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. I get, I get weirdly nostalgic for something I didn't even experience, but uh, that's, that's the credits, man. That's everybody. Yeah. Uh, and then tomorrow we uh, get into the movie proper. And uh, you guys should uh, check out the uh, other Movies by Minute podcast, moviesbyminutes.com. Uh, you can you can go there and check out all of the all of the Movies by Minutes podcasts that have started up. There's I'm sure there's been I don't know fifty more since we last season uh, <laughs> of this show. So uh, go go check that out. See if there's stuff on there that you want to you want to listen to and uh also check out duelinggenre.com and check out the other podcasts we have on our network um you know harry potter and lord of the rings are, are going to be returning soonish yes. with new seasons and um rocky uh rocky three rocky minute will be doing rocky three uh at some point during this season they'll start that up as well i think toy story is going to be returning with toy story minute uh season three as well so wow. um yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting. All of wow, we're all doing threes, huh? We're all doing the third film in our franchise. I guess we all started around the same time. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. So lots of uh, you. You are not uh, <laughs> you are not low on uh, on on second sequels at duelinggenre.com. <laughs> so um, if that's uh, if that's what you're into, if you're into third films, uh, then uh, you've you've hit the right place because uh, there's going to be a lot of them. Yeah. So, or you can go back and listen to the first and second if you haven't caught up on those shows before. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's DuelingGenre.com, MoviesByMinutes.com, 
And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Minute 4. Bye. Bye. Bye.